The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host, also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. I have with me in the studio today Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be here. Uh, this uh, episode is another edition or a another episode, I guess, segment of Faith and Practice, where we take listener questions and put them before Dr. Piper and uh, see if we can stump him. No, I'm just kidding. Not stump <laughs> him, but rather uh, glean from him some biblical insight and wisdom. And as we go into this episode, we have a number of excellent questions treating the Sabbath, pastoral care, and other issues. And so we're excited to dive in. Uh, before we do so, let me pray to open us up, uh, open up our time together. Our God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you. We thank you that in Christ you have given us all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge needful for faith and practice. We pray that you would be here with us by your Spirit even now while we consider these questions and that the answers that are offered up to our listeners would be useful. Uh, for reproof and instruction and godliness. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, Dr. Piper, we are going to uh, kick off here with a question from Josh Pitts of Leesburg, Georgia. If a candidate articulates an exception to Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21 of religious worship in the Sabbath day, doesn't that necessarily require an exception to Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19 of the law of God? Because the candidate's stated exception is recategorizing the fourth commandment from the moral law to the ceremonial law. Thank you, Josh. Um, not all exceptions to the fourth commandment would be a violation of um, the, um, the fourth commandment in terms of that it's a, the moral law of God and, and what it requires. But if I read your question correctly, uh, this particular candidate said that the Fourth Commandment was not a moral law, but a ceremonial law. If that was his exception, yes. That also strikes against the vitals of uh, the system, and that person should not, is not ordainable, should not be ordainable in the PCA, or transferable. Uh, for that would be a clear violation of, uh, of the standards approach to the moral law of God, which is spelled out in a number of different places, as well as uh, the Sabbath. So if that were the exception, yes, the other exception would have to be stated, and it definitely would be, um, well, by itself, whichever chapter you take, it would still strike against the vitals of, of the Reformed piety. Now, if it were an exception, we hear one about, well, and people really don't understand the, quote, recreation clause. Uh, so I want to do something with my children or take them for a walk. Uh, in our Presbytery, we're trying to help them understand that if, if you're fulfilling the purposes of the Sabbath in these activities, then that's not an exception. If you're simply going out to play ball or something, um, that would be an exception. Or the person in your church who absents themselves from Sunday evening worship, that would be an exception. Um, it would be a 
violation of, I think, the proper interpretation of the fourth commandment. It wouldn't be a repudiation of the fourth commandment. And, and so the distinction here is really comes down to whether what you're doing on the Lord's Day serves the purposes of the day. Going out and playing an organized ball game, either in a league or even in a pickup game, does not really serve the purposes of the day. But going on a walk with your son or even throwing a ball around in the yard while speaking of the things of God can be uh, serving the purposes of the day since it's helping him or her, if it's your daughter, expend energy so as to be more alert and and better, um, better prepared for worship in the evening. Or just spending time together. Our, yeah, our churches that sometimes when I was doing more pulpit supply, I'd be at a church and they'd have the young people out playing volleyball uh, as part of a youth group activity on the Lord's Day. Well, that's really in no way fits the purposes of the Sabbath. It's not, a lot of people misunderstand the rest is a spiritual rest. That's not, not that it's wrong because we're to do deeds of necessity and mercy. And so to get some physical rest, uh, on the Sabbath is not inappropriate. But the, the focus of rest in the commandment and in the scriptures is a spiritual rest so that whatever we do should be contributing to our consciously resting in Christ and communing with the triune God. Thank you for the question, Josh. Our next question comes from Christopher Ross of Homeview, Queensland, Australia. It's a rather specific question treating one of the resources that the seminary makes available through our sermon audio page. He writes, the Mount Olive Tape Library hosted by GPTS on Sermon Audio has a lecture by Dr. Gerard Van Groningen entitled How to Read the Bible, Number 3, Christ as Center in the Whole Life, in which Dr. Groningen referred to memorizing and learning foundational passages of Scripture from the Old Testament related to the central or overall message of the Bible. And for those listeners who are not familiar with the name, Dr. Van Groningen uh, taught for a long time at Covenant Theological Seminary. He taught in the Old Testament department, and he's the author of a two-volume uh, treatment of Messianic Revelation in the Old Testament. He also taught at RTS in Jackson. He also taught at RTS in Jackson. There I think he was there first and then went to Covenant, if I remember correctly. Perhaps. I think he retired at Covenant, though. Yes. No, he started at RTS. That's right. We, we were friends. Very good. And so the question is, does Dr. Piper know what passages Dr. Van Groningen may have had in mind, or what passages Dr. Piper considers foundational to the central or overall message of the Bible from the Old Testament? And that's a great question for you, since you wrote that little book, The Root and the Branch. Great question, Christopher. Uh, I think that uh, by the title of the lecture, uh, we're talking here about particularly Christological uh, passages. Christ is the center in the whole life. Uh, and knowing of his interest there, uh, I would think that uh, first would be the significant Christological passages from Genesis 3.15 uh, to Abraham and Melchizedek to Genesis 22, the uh, uh, God supplying an offering for Isaac. Um, in the Mosaic economy, I would think the uh, Deuteronomy 18, the prophet, the passage about the prophet, the passage about we've done Melchizedek, but the prophets, it's all there together in Deuteronomy 17 and 18 about the prophet priest. Not necessarily all memorizable, but surely 18, Deuteronomy 18, about the prophet, uh, great Davidic uh, passages, uh, all of Psalm 2, probably Psalm 1 and 2, which gives you a key to the whole Psalter. Uh, Psalm 22, the first part, Christ quotes. Uh, any of those passages in the New Testament that apply 
the Psalms to Christ would be worth memorizing. Of course, Psalm 110, uh, Isaiah 7:14 about the virgin birth, Isaiah 9, uh, the uh, Messianic King, Isaiah 52, 12 to uh, 53, 12. Anyway, the last three verses of 52 and then the 12 verses of uh, 53. Um, so that you've got a good grasp of the Messianic passages of the Old Testament. One of the things that I've been burdened with, and Dr. Morales is as well, is our lack of any kind of focused evangelism uh, with the Jews. We're so preoccupied today, and rightly so for a number of reasons, with Muslim evangelism. But we need to be get much more aggressive, I think, with uh, Jewish evangelism. And one of the ways we're going to be able to do that is to uh, take these passages of Scripture. I was reading this morning Isaiah, a passage that... <laughs> I would love to just be sitting with a rabbi and say, not knowing I'm a Christian, and saying, you know, I've been puzzling over this. Could you help me understand what, uh, what this means in Isaiah chapter 48, 16? Come near to me, listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. Forever speaking is eternal. And now the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. So who's speaking here that's eternal, that was sent by uh, Jehovah God, and who is the Spirit who was sent with him? So these kind of passages are great uh, passages. Or Psalm 110, the passage Jesus used with the Jews. Who in the world is this person that's David's son and David's Lord? Um, my wife's been listening uh, a lot lately to Jewish testimonies, and, and modern Jews, many of them do not even know that Jesus was Jewish and don't know a word of the New Testament. But we can take these Old Testament passages and just approach them, and I've been wondering about this, and how do you all understand a passage like this, and who, of whom is it speaking? So the great Messianic passages, I think, uh, are important for all of us to have memorized. That's a great question, and I thank you for asking it, Christopher, and um, really encouraged to know that the vast uh, library that we've made available on Sermon Audio, thanks to the generosity of Mr. Calhoun uh, there in the Mount Olive Tape Library, that that vast library is being used with profit around the world. Um, just a reminder to our other listeners, Christopher asked this question from Queensland, Australia, and this tape library was housed in uh, little Mount Olive, Mississippi. And so it's just amazing to see how the Lord uh, gives wings to sound teaching as it traverses all over the world. Our next question comes from uh, GPDS graduate Sam Ketchum of Opelika, Alabama. And he asks, in a recent podcast, Dr. Piper surveyed his view of worship, which in addition to elements and circumstances also included the idea of, quote, forms. In my reading of the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is no third concept in the discussion of worship, nor do I know of any of our beloved Presbyterian forefathers who have espoused such views. Could you comment on the development of this view regarding forms in worship within our Reformed tradition, and also comment on whether or not it is consistent with the Westminster standards? I remain grateful for your life and ministry. Your friend, Sam Ketchum. Thank you, Sam, and thank you for pushing me. I always appreciate that. Uh, about you. Let me begin with a little gentle nudge to you. Uh, there are a number of terms that our great loved fathers uh, did not find in the Bible, like Trinity, uh, atonement, 
uh, and they coined those words to express uh, what are biblical concepts. So I think this is what's happened with the concept of form. It does have a uh, ancient pedigree, uh, and that is uh, Calvin uses the term in Institutes 41030 um, um, to he points out that we need to distinguish between things that are circumstantial or elements, but with what is circumstantial, he puts things that are revealed in Scripture. Now, Sam, I know that you know Gillespie's three standards for what are circumstances. Um, they must not be an element. They must not be found in Scripture. They must be wise. And so what Calvin's dealing with there are things, yes, those types of things, but then he introduces discussion of postures in worship. Uh, so he takes, for example, kneeling, which is revealed in Scripture and is a revealed posture in prayer. But he says it's not a required posture in prayer. Uh, although you wouldn't agree with him, women's head covering. Calvin says this is revealed in Scripture, uh, but I think it's not a required uh, those are the two illustrations that he gives. So what has happened is that Reformed thinkers have said, well, then we've got to distinguish between a circumstance and an element, some things that are revealed in Scripture but are not mandated. So the whole idea of liturgy, what liturgy do we use? There's no directory of worship in the Bible. And so um, it's a form of whether you're going to sing uh, uh, and have, have this order in your liturgy or another order of liturgy. Uh, but in fact, Sam, the word is used in the Westminster Larger Catechism 186 and 187, uh, and that is uh, the Lord's Prayer is called a form of prayer. So it's not just an outline of prayer. Yeah, I, I thought we should read that. You got yours open, you go ahead and do it. 186 and 187. Uh, what rule hath God given for our direction in the duty of prayer? The whole word of God is of use to direct us in the duty of prayer, but the special rule of direction is that form of prayer, which our Savior Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And how is the Lord's Prayer to be used? The Lord's Prayer is not only for direction as a pattern, according to which we are to make other prayers, but also but may also be used as a prayer so that it be done with understanding, faith, reverence, and other graces necessary to the right performance of the duty of prayer. So there the word form is used for uh, a common prayer, a particular prayer uh, that is not required to be used in worship, but may be used in worship. And so in the directory of worship uh, on page 164, uh, we are told that we may use the Lord's Prayer at the end of our prayers. Um, I think it's Bannerman as well in the uh, uh, church when he discusses um, the Apostles' Creed. No, it's in Bauer's uh, book on his uh, on the larger catechism, discussing the Apostles' Creed, and he makes a distinction there. That, looking at the debate of the fathers, they distinguish between substance and form. So the substance of the creed was in the catechism. The form which means then the exact words were not in the catechism. Although when the Scottish Assembly adopted the catech shorter catechism, they appended the Apostles' Creed at the end of it. 
So let's. There was a lot of material there um, for the for the uninitiated, so All to right. speak. We have an element which must be included in a worship service. Right. Without an without an element, your worship is lacking something essential to the very nature of corporate worship. Right. And and those are mandated either by precept or by um, good example. necessary infants or example or good necessary infants and bannerman in and and Gillespie call that in sacrifice those things that are sacred in themselves yes and so that would include things such as prayer itself the reading and preaching of the word the singing of psalms hymns and spiritual songs the call to worship the benediction and um, and then there's some debate about passing of the taking up of the offering as right. as an element of worship and there's some disagreement there now what about circumstance you mentioned Gillespie's three standards for a circumstance that, that it circumstances, must be yeah, uh, necessary for what's being accomplished circumstances are spelled out in Westminster Confession uh, chapter 1 paragraph 6 which is the first statement about the regulative principle of worship that we're to use only those things that God reveals to us so the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory man's salvation faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence, which we've dealt with in the program before, may be deduced from Scripture, under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So the common actions of uh, societies by the order by the light of nature is there are certain things necessary anytime you have a voluntary group of people getting together with there's more than one person. Uh, there has to be an agreement, time, place. There has to be arrangements. And so it was the uh, circus the things that surround or support the elements of worship. So what time of day, how long we're going to meet, where we're going to meet. Uh, we're going to use uh, hymn books. Are we going to put the words on overhead on the screen? Uh, all these types of things, sound systems, all of these things are circumstances of worship. And then you have And then this. Gillespie gave broke out from what we have here that has to be um, in addition to the light of nature uh, consistent wise and consistent with the rules of the word. And the text they use here is what uh, Paul wrote in 1 uh, Corinthians let all things be done decently uh, in order. Let all things be done unto edification. Let all things be done decently and in order. So Gillespie and Bannerman then expel that out, that it must not be a substance of worship, not an element. It must not be revealed in Scripture. And then third, it must be wise. And there must be sound reasons why the elders are doing this. So the wrestling with the concept of form is there are things revealed in Scripture that are not mandated. And that's the only concept of form. So it is the content of the element, I think, is one way to, to consider it. The content of the element or the ordering 
of the element. So postures as well, the corporate amen, which was clearly uh, in the, um, the Bible and in the Reformed churches and in the Puritan churches, uh, but it's not mandated. The church isn't sinning if they don't have the corporate amen. So that's what we mean by form. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, one time Steve Slissel said that uh, uh, he talked to someone who said, well, I've never heard of the regular principle until I joined the OPC. And uh, so I talked to my friends at uh, Mid-America. And it says, oh, yeah, it's clearly it's in the Belgian Confession. We don't use that term. And so what the man had not heard was the term, but the concept was clearly there. Well, I believe the term and the concept are here in the larger catechism and in Calvin in particular. Thank you for the question, Sam. If there's any follow-up on that, please send it in. We'd love to explore this, uh, this further um, as worship is a, a recurring theme on this podcast and questions regarding worship. The next question comes from another Greenville graduate and his wife up in Grand Island, New York, Andy and Abby Wan. Our six-year-old knows that he should not look at images of Jesus. However, he has a difficult time at night because he thinks of Jesus, and pictures of him that he has unavoidably seen come into his mind. He has a tender conscience about this, and he calls them bad pictures. Do you have any suggestions for how he can think about Jesus without sinning? We certainly, we certainly don't want him to be scared to meditate on our Savior. Well, hello, Andy and Abby, and uh, what a perceptive, important question. Um, the very problem that your son is having is something I keep addressing with people that take this exception to the standards, is that because of how children are wired, they have a picture of Christ in the Bible storybook that involuntarily will come into their minds, and we have automatically created a problem for them. This is how people are wired. It's not just children. Yeah, but it's particularly in children, though. We can discipline ourselves. Yeah, but children have a harder time with it. Right. Yeah. So, um, on the one hand, you know, you've, you've pointed out the danger of uh, such things. Now, to help a little fellow here, um, one, I think one thing I tell him was that that which happens to you unconsciously or subconsciously, you have to explain that to him, but not deliberately, uh, yes, it's a sin, but it's a sin of our weakness, and God forgives it, and you just ask him to forgive uh, having those images. But try to replace them with two things. Uh, get in, say, when, you, when that happens, start thinking about the Lord's Supper. Think about the bread and the wine that you have seen us use at the Lord's Supper. And remember that Jesus said, this is the picture that he would want you to think about. Second, I would work on giving him some key passages about the Savior to memorize. Short verses that he can memorize and say that when this happens, just start quoting this verse to yourself about Jesus, about his power or his compassion or his, uh, his death on the cross. So I think that's how I would, would look at it, and I, I think he'll surely grow out of this. I mean, from my own self, uh, growing up in, in a household which really had no concept of the inappropriateness of pictorial representations of God or any member of the, of the Trinity, um, for a long time, every time I thought of God, I thought of that picture that's in a lot of books of a cloud with the sun behind it with rays of light. And it took me a long time, even into early adulthood, to get beyond that, knowing this is so silly. That's, you know, God is light, yes, but this 
picture is not a faithful representation of anything, really. All right, our next question is from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina. In episode 186 of Confessing Our Hope, Faith and Practice, number 47, mind you, we're on number like 60 something at this point anyway 186 is the overall podcast number yeah and, and then 47 is the faith and practice yeah. segment so dr piper explained that lying is permitted when it's done to protect life what about lying done by law enforcement or the military such as undercover agents and spies are there lies permissible in cases that aren't directly for protection of life such as investigating fraud investigating drug distribution or monitoring an enemy in peacetime so basically, he's asking: Are stings breaking the uh, the the, um, right. the ninth commandment? Right. Uh, boy, what a question, Chad! I, I think in the first place that what we have here is a species of the genus, the principle, because all the things you mentioned do involve life, uh, the responsibility of government to protect life and to provide uh, for life, uh, and so I do believe it's an extension of the. Uh, of the principle, uh, but we also have the biblical sanctions. So we have deliberate uh, military feints, uh, ambushes, uh, where deceptive military tactics were used, ordained by God, commanded by God. And so there we have, I think, a very clear warrant for any of these things that are in the proper purview of the government in order to protect the quality of life and to protect its citizens from danger, either in terms of criminal investigation or in terms of war. And that's how I would uh, explain those things. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Let's, uh, let's hear some follow-up on that issue, particularly as it pertains to law enforcement and things like drug busts and posing as drug dealers and prostitution stings and, uh, and stuff of that nature. Because uh, I, think, I think it's a little bit more interesting to think through when we're not talking about a martial context, but we're talking about a criminal context in law enforcement. So anyway, if we have follow-up on that, please send it in. Our next question comes from Timothy Miller of Florida. He asks, what level of confessional subscription and knowledge should be required of deacons? And um, I'll just read this whole thing. The ordination vows in BCO 24-6 would make it seem as though there is no distinction between elder and deacon in regards to adherence to the standards. Additionally, the congregational response in this same section, regardless of office, includes a promise of obedience insofar as it is required of the office. However, I was under the impression that the office of deacon is not one of authority over the congregation. Would you mind clarifying? Should the congregational response be adjusted depending on whether deacons or elders are being ordained? Timothy, um, it's a very important question. Um, and there's two or three issues. Let me start with the middle of, or toward the end there. Uh, it's my understanding the office of deacon is an authoritative office. Uh, the deacon's going to be responsible, the deacons corporately are going to be responsible for making decisions about uh, diaconal ministry. Uh, they're not required to go to the elders uh, and get everything cleared. They must make decisions on the basis of, of criteria and standards that they have worked out that the elders would have approved. But the deacons are going to be the ones that decide this family gets help short-term or long-term. This family does not get help. This family, if they want help, need to provide them work with us on a budget. This man needs to work with us on looking for a job. So any number of things. It's a spiritual office. We see that from uh, 
Acts chapter 6, where they're to have wisdom and the Holy Spirit uh, for their office. And so although it does not rise to the authority of the elder, and they are subject themselves to the session, it's still an office of authority. Now, as to the level of confessional subscription and knowledge, I just read an embannerman, and uh, he seeks, tries to make the case that a deacon does not need to have as much uh, knowledge as the elder or the elder as the, uh, as the minister. Uh, I believe that all officers should hold to exact subscription to the standards, which means a deacon must understand the standards to the degree that he can good conscience say, I agree with all the doctrines that are taught here. Does need to be as articulate in terms of uh, the expression of some of those doctrines, able to sit down with somebody and to flesh it out and explain it? No. We don't look for the same level of knowledge in a deacon, our ability to communicate that knowledge as we would in an elder. Uh, and then an elder, the knowledge must, because of our high view of the eldership, we're going to expect much more knowledge with respect to an elder. But again, not all elders will have the same level of articulation. All must be able to teach and rebuke in private. Others will have a gift of public teaching. Some might even have the gift of, of preaching or exhorting. Uh, but in terms of confessional subscription, I think all should have the same level. In terms of knowledge, I do think there's a degree between deacons, elders, and ministers. Another aspect of the deacon's authority, Dr. Piper, is not merely the making of decisions, so a decisional authority and prerogative, but I also think that there is, um, and I, I don't know the language exactly, but there is a, a responsibility of the deacon to encourage the generosity right. and faithful, self-sacrificial giving of the congregation. This is an aspect of diaconal ministry that is really sorely neglected in the church today. Correct. And I've seen great examples of it, and, I, and I've seen other churches where there doesn't seem to be an awareness. And so that responsibility seems to devolve on elders and even pastors to the exclusion of deacons. But that, that encouragement is by, necess by necessity involves exhortation and direction. And then if we go beyond that a little bit further, when you have volunteers who are volunteering to help do things at the church, it's the deacons that generally then direct those volunteers, and that's a very clear expression of authority. Yep. And, and, and it's spiritual authority, because these are spiritual deeds, spiritual work in a spiritual context. Very good. Yeah, in fact, uh, when I pastored uh, under shepherd teams, my teams always had an elder and a deacon. And the deacon's responsibility in the home visit was to talk to people about their stewardship. Are they tithing? Uh, you know, what, what is their commitment to serving the Lord in that manner? Uh, one of the reasons I highly appreciate Southern Presbyterians, which are under a great deal of attack today, is that it was the Southern Presbyterians who really, in the history of any kind of, of contemporary, the last two or 300 years of Presbyterianism, uh, outside of what maybe Chalmers did. Uh, but Southern Presbyterians really developed the office of deacon. And if you're interested, you get Peck in his works on uh, uh, his three volumes. And also the seminary publishes his uh, miscellanies where he deals a good deal with the work of deacon. And it's quite important. And one of our visions here, and, and Zach and I are trying to, to uh, restart a church, the vision there as well is to see a deacon that functions at a 
high level of biblical efficiency. Timothy has a follow-up question here about how we're doing that at the seminary, and I think this is a a great thing to to rope in uh, to the discussion at this point. He says, I'm a deacon at a PCA church and recently learned of Greenville's Master of Ministry for Deacons program. At what point would you advise a deacon go through this program? Is there some preparation the deacon should undertake or a certain number of years he should serve before considering the program? Additionally, in what ways does this program better equip a deacon in faithfully fulfilling his role? And this is a great program. We have a number of students enrolled in it today who are actively uh, serving as deacons. In, um, in at this point, I think they're all PCA, PCA congregations around the country. Dr. Piper, do you want to speak to that just briefly? Yes, I do. We designed this program when we got uh, into a, uh, a program where we were getting some grants, and they wanted us for that to develop more diaconal ministry, which we were glad to do. We already had the Master of Ministry for Ruling Elders. Uh, and so this, I guess, into the kind of the core doctrinal and pastoral part of our curriculum. And then with a couple of courses that Dr. Wilbur and I have developed in the past that would focus on uh, the work of deacons and parish uh, model for ministry and evangelism. Uh, a man can take this even before he's in office if his session recommends him, but we would encourage any deacon, uh, brand new or older, uh, to take the course if he has the time. It, it's all online. Um, you can do it part-time in four years. And um, I think it, uh, it gives you a theological and practical background for your office and I believe it does equip men to function better as deacons. And the more we work on it, the better it will be. Timothy, if you are interested in that program, and I'll follow up with you offline, but please contact me. I'd be happy to put you in touch with one of our MMD students, and you can hear from a man who's in the thick of it right now about his experience and, and whether or not it's useful to him and what he wishes he had done to prepare or, or what have you. I'm also happy to give you my perspective on things as the director of admissions. And anyone else that's listening, I, I hope you're aware that we have uh, dedicated programs for um, deacons and elders. And uh, we are really excited to have men enroll in those programs and to to grow in their not just competency, but also fervor and zeal for the work to which they've been called uh, in service to Christ and his church. Uh, Dr. Piper, we're going to jump down to Janelle Hayde's um, question. And, and Janelle, I really, I really hope I pronounced your last name correctly, um, but she's a Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. And she writes, this is a, such an important issue. My fiancé and I are Reformed Christians, grew up in the same church, and hold relatively similar views on most topics. However, we often get into debates on the application of principles. For example, discussing what activities are worshipful for the Sabbath. As we prepare for marriage, where is there room for a wife to disagree with her husband on specific applications of biblical principles while still submitting to him and following him? Thank you, Janelle, for the question. Uh, boy, we've had some great questions today. This, um, the um, try to break break this apart. The what activities are worshipful for the Sabbath? Uh, I think I'd want to expand that to say what activities are appropriate and edifying for the Sabbath. So, of course, the bookends of Sabbath keeping would be morning and evening worship. And they should be uh, the highlight of the Sabbath day for us. Next would be family worship. Oftentimes, 
uh, because of family schedules, particularly as children get older, our awkward work schedules, we're not as consistent during the week with family worship as we'd like to be. So one of the great opportunities God gives us uh, is to have a longer time for family worship uh, on the Lord's Day. Connected with that, the larger catechism recommends a review of the sermon. And so again, uh, family worship's a good time to do that uh, at, at noon and then in the evening, uh, come home and uh, there review the sermon. Of course now, by the time you've worshiped twice and had family worship and done some sermon review, you have uh, uh, really spent a good portion of, of the Sabbath uh, in these types of activities. But there's also uh, activities for edification. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, the rest of the Sabbath is a spiritual rest, consciously resting in Christ and communing uh, with Him. So in applying then the principle to these areas that would be gray, uh, in my book, I list a series of questions. Uh, and, and the primary thing is, does this event help me fulfill the purpose of the day? So, for example, does a board game? Well, if children had a board game that was really a Bible learning board game, yes. I don't see why an adult or a young adult needs a board game uh, in any way that would contribute to their keeping the Sabbath, when in fact God's given us now time to read, uh, to have conversations, as we said earlier, to go for a walk, but in that walk to focus on our communion with the Lord. And so I think we can fill the day for ourselves and our children with diverse activities. Let me give an example of what I mean does this fulfill the purpose of the day. When I pastored in Houston, I was uh, a runner, a very avid runner, uh, running, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 miles a week. Um, so for me, that was pleasure. Uh, <laughs> some folks will laugh at that. Recreation. Uh, and so I'm not going to run on the Lord's Day. Uh, it becomes an idol. But I had an elder who didn't like to run, never ran, except on the Lord's Day afternoon, he would go out and run around the block a couple of times so he could stay awake in church on Sunday evening. So you see, it was all the purpose. For him, it was contributing to the need, the purpose of the day. For me, it would have been another act of recreation. And so we can't draw hard and fast lines. So now in a marriage, and I have a, a, a friend who uh, jokingly would say of me that uh, I'm the only person he knew that uh, got his fiance to subscribe to the West Virginia Confession before he married her. Well, to a degree that was true because I did not want to be unequally yoked. I'm a pastor. I have some very... Uh, strong convictions then about worship and the Sabbath in particular. And so it was very important that we be on, uh, on the same page. Uh, and so, yes, the husband leads in this. Uh, now, if it's a matter of, so let's say you're the person who needs to get out and do something more vigorous uh, uh, to be able to worship, uh, then at that point your husband needs to respect your conscience and needs if you're if you're showing to him this is helping me to worship so it maybe wouldn't help him but if it in fact did help you but at the end of the day he has has the final words y'all discuss these things and this is what headship's all about anyway it always begins with discussion so you all discuss these things and if there are places that you cannot agree he either has to decide this really is a matter of principle and we'll have to say no, or this is a gray area, 
and I'm going to respect your conscience at this. But whatever his decision at that point is, then you need joyfully to, uh, to follow him. I hope this helps, uh, Janelle. And I kind of anticipated some of the things that uh, another uh, gentleman asked as well. Yeah, family worship is necessary on the Lord's Day. In fact, it's a great opportunity uh, to, to do that um, on, on the Lord's Day. Uh, and uh, family worship, I think, is governed by the regular principle of worship. We can do other things with our children, teaching them and whatever, but when it comes to it, we're going to call it worship. And we can't do everything that's in corporate worship, but the things that uh, are allowable in private. So, for example, our confession in two different places talks about uh, private, public, and family worship and prayer. And so it is expected of us, and the Lord's Day is a good opportunity for that. Uh, that brings us up on our time, but thank you for these questions. Please send in more, and if if you are in the Presbyterian Church in America, and um, I would encourage you, if you're an elder, to attend uh, the PCA General Assembly at the end of this month, and if you require financial assistance, please visit moreinthepca.org apply or contact me, and I'd be happy to give you more information about that. It is uh, critically important. We have almost 2,000 commissioners that have registered this year. It'll be the largest assembly in history in the PCA. And then, um, and if you're not an elder, then talk to your elders and determine whether or not they're planning to go. And if not, why not? Either because of scheduling conflicts or work obligations, or if it's a financial matter. If it's a financial matter, and that is really the only reason, um, we have... Uh, over $100,000 in the bank to help ruling elders get to GA. So please do not hesitate to reach out to us. Um, we are really urging men to be conscientious presbyters uh, this year for the sake of Christ's glory and the purity and peace of the church. Again, that's more in the pca.org slash apply. And if you have further questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Dr. Piper, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. It has, Zach. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.